everybody. Welcome to the Tech Analyst Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined as always by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, good to talk to you today. It's been a little while. It has. It has. We have a lot of good stuff to talk about here uh, in the mobile industry and the PC industry. Yeah, let's let's just jump right into it. Uh, I think maybe one of the most surprising things we've heard over the last week or two uh, is some rumors coming out about an Intel Broadcom takeover. You know, you think if we're going to mention Broadcom, we're going to go into all the details about the Qualcomm stuff. We obviously will, but this one stood out in a, a couple of ways. When I heard this at first, I kind of dis- immediately dismissed it as. Uh, this is some rumor mongering happening, trying to build up some buzz for Broadcom or trying to, you know, ratchet up the Broadcom stock as it attempts to continue to push forward with this Qualcomm deal. The more I kind of sat on it, the more I thought that there, there is a possibility that Intel uh, feels left out of uh, both of these, both this industry kind of thing, you know, the the wireless, the front end, the networking side, as well as kind of they feel like maybe personally left out that the fact that these two giant chip companies are talking about being the two giant chip companies that they are and not involving Intel in some way. And I, that that kind of came up to all that. Maybe that doesn't make as much sense from a business standpoint. But uh, what were your thoughts when you heard that Intel might be interested in acquiring Broadcom? So first of all, uh, it coming in late Friday, I thought it was a joke. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't. And I can talk myself into thinking that this is a good offensive move or defensive move. And let's start with defense first. So uh, a Qualcomm, uh, Broadcom uh, tie-up, even though they do have a lot of overlaps, uh, would give would give the combined company uh, a better chance at getting more wireless business because uh, they would have you know the full array of digital and they would have a full array of of RF. Now, now that Qualcomm has kind of uh, RF end to end, that that's not as big of a deal. But I think Intel could see that as a threat if the combined Broadcom Qualcomm turns around and says, "Hey, Apple." Um, you know, here's our solution. So yeah. from a defensive move, I can see that. And then secondarily, I could see it from an offensive move that says an Intel digital modem uh, plus a Qualcomm RF capabilities plus IoT capabilities plus a very strong wired data center uh, business that Broadcom does, how this could make sense offensively Broadcom is the uh, premier chip provider in um, uh, routers and switches. Mm-hmm. So in the data center, so you would have the top server uh, CPU provider. Uh, you would have the top uh, switch provider, and you can do some really interesting things in in the data center with that. Uh, culturally, very similar to. Uh, you know, lack of culture fit with Broadcom and, and Qualcomm, there's definitely a culture mismatch between Intel and Broadcom. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree there. It's interesting because probably the, the, of these three companies, the merger takeover acquisition that would be the easiest to pass through certification and kind of all these governmental regulation agencies would be Intel Qualcomm. Uh, but that's not even on the table because Intel is obviously trying to, 
you know, create this relationship with Apple for the modem side. Obviously, getting into Qualcomm there wouldn't help them. Uh, there is some overlap on the modem side there. But it's interesting to see this trifecta of companies kind of, well, now trifecta of companies vying for one another. And in any direction this moves would be the largest tech acquisition to ever take place. Don't we keep um, saying that on a monthly basis? <laughs> yeah, First I know. It was uh, Qualcomm NXP, and then it yeah. was Broadcom Qualcomm, and now we're talking Intel uh, Broadcom. It, it is kind of funny if you think that the, the, the Qualcomm NXP stuff has almost been written off as a done deal, like this is already happening, and it, and it hasn't been approved by still, uh, I guess China is the, the last agency to, right. to take that, so they keep having to, to extend their their offers, um, Qualcomm does. So it, 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 that's still not a done deal uh, with all the other stuff going on. So it definitely isn't getting any less complex. And speaking of not being uh, <laughs> less complex, um, one of the things that happened early last week was Qualcomm released a letter that was sent to them by CFIUS, which is a government agency. It's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States um, that is responsible for looking into the potential security and national security conflicts that would occur from uh, foreign companies investing in the U.S. or U.S. companies divesting into foreign foreign entities. Um, and basically, back in January, Qualcomm submitted a notification to this group and said, uh, hey, we want you to look at this. And my understanding is that's, that's actually a fairly standard thing to do. Um, but it is not normal for this agency to pipe up and release information or, or make statements until a deal had been agreed to, right? Not not during negotiation periods, but after something's been agreed to, and then the then the federal government, uh, this is the Department of Treasury, I think, would come in and say, yeah, we like this, or, yeah, we don't like this. Um, <clears throat> the, I think it's pretty clear that this was this is a defense mechanism from from Qualcomm. This is not just this is not only a standard run-of-the-mill kind of conversation that they've had. Uh, but the CFIUS letter had some pretty damning language in it surrounding uh, not just Broadcom's ties as a foreign entity, right, but more along the lines of, hey, we as the federal government see a lot of value in what Qualcomm does. We don't think you see the same value, talking to Broadcom, and uh, we worry that you would affect our position nationally as a technology leader in this space. And then there are some other security concerns because uh, Qualcomm does have some DOD contracts in place. What were your thoughts about uh, this whole arrangement? So first of all, super aggressive wording. Sif, quote unquote, Cifius believes that this transaction could pose a risk to the national security of the United States, end quote. That's, yeah. that's huge. Uh, I did uh, pick up, like you talked about, this whole notion of the way that concern over the way that Broadcom uses its roll-ups, which is they come in to a company where there's uh, long-term R&D, they cut that long-term R&D, and its impact to the United States. And I've gotten a lot of questions from the press uh, on this. And the only thing that I can think of right now, aside from the DOD contracts, is that is that CFIUS sees, uh, along with the military, a future where we have basically connected drones everywhere, mm. and and getting first access to that technology versus, let's say, China. Mm -hmm. um, and and I did a little bit of more digging, and then when I I went and looked at some prior CFIUS action uh, against Broadcom, 
um, in, in another acquisition uh, that, that, that they were making, there were some questions about Broadcom's proximity to Huawei. And we all know, you know, you know how much consternation there has been uh, about that company lately. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And it, they even bring up they go into surprisingly specific detail in the letter, even talking about the fact that if if Qualcomm um, were to develop less into the five G space and even next generation technologies, it would actually leave an opening for Chinese companies to overtake this infrastructure um, and and development side, which the United States sees as a, as a potential risk because they don't want the expansion of a company like Huawei, who they've already kind of stated they have their concerns about. Whether or not they're justified is not this discussion, but if if the federal government and these different agencies have expressed that, they would you know have more reason to do so in an expanded world of these uh, of these Chinese companies. Well, I I, I think the well, the number one and two uh, IP providers to five G is Huawei and Qualcomm. So without naming Huawei, I think that that is the concern. And what nobody's really talking about is there is something after 5G. There will likely be a 5.5G, and there will obviously yeah. be something like a 6G. And that's, that's the real long-term concern, I believe, not that 5G. The government, I don't think, is concerned about the 5G rollout, even though a lot in the tech community are, because right. Qualcomm shoulders the burden for a lot of that deployment and testing out there. Yep. Yep. A couple of other couple of other quick things in the 5G space. Qualcomm um, did last week, maybe two weeks ago now, uh, they they talked about their 5G module program. Um, this was the Basically, them attempting to simplify integration of 5G technology and allowing companies to have kind of a turnkey solution to implementing 5G, whether it be on IoT devices or any kind of other connected device. You wrote this up on uh, one of your Forbes stories. Yeah, I see this as classic platformization. Uh, Intel does this great, right? You can buy a complete turnkey server with all the silicon. It's tested. Uh, and Intel has benefited from the ability to offer a complete end-to-end solution. Mm-hmm. And, and now here on 5G, literally taking a thousand discrete parts, uh, the digital side and the analog side, all the way from uh, the compute to uh, the LTE modem, uh, Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, uh, and then the analog side, uh, the envelope tracking, uh, the PIMX, um, all of the all of the chips that would make the RF, they're testing it and they're optimizing it. And I can't figure out if it's four chips or five chips, but it just works. And net result is it's a lot easier to come to Qualcomm for all of your needs uh, in, in 5G. And I also see this as a way of accelerating 5G endpoints because even if this isn't going to be what you use next year, it certainly is one of the best time-to-market um, solutions that you can uh, get out there. Yep. And you also touched on uh, some test equipment and basically the importance of what National Instruments, National Instruments, as I try to pronounce that correctly, uh, for test and measurement ha- has brought to the table with 5G as well, which is, a, you know, to be fair, a company that hasn't been getting a lot of discussion or play in the space recently. That's right, and you know I have a soft spot in my heart for them. They're they're in Austin, Texas, but 
they are the premier um, equipment provider to even researchers who do this, right? Mm. If you don't have the equipment that actually tests that the signal quality, the signal strength uh, is working. And I was in their labs, gosh, a few years ago, and they had taken a Y-Gig module and turned it into a, uh, a millimeter wave 5G module. Uh, and we're doing uh, testing and then they sell those systems to uh, researchers, carriers, company like, companies like Qualcomm and Intel and, and carrier, carrier equipment makers. And the, the two announcements that they made, it's pretty cool, is they have a sub six gigahertz uh, uh, test equipment that mm -hmm. can emulate any phone and any modem. Uh, there might be a 3GPP standard for 5G NR, but every device and every modem acts differently. So sure. it can be an Intel chip, it can be a Qualcomm chip, it can be a Corvo RF chip, a Broadcom, a Qualcomm RF chip. They're all different, and what they're doing is uh, working with companies like uh, Samsung, um, uh, who not just makes phones, but they also make care equipment to make sure that uh, their equipment is ready and compatible for all these new endpoints. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, interesting. What, uh, one of the things that, that HP did recently was they announced kind of an expansion of their DAS service, I'll pronounce it, other than D-A-A-S, device <laughs> as a service. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue. This is, a, this is basically kind of, you know, software as a service, PC as a service. This is uh, the ability for enterprise to simplify and kind of bring together their their purchasing and their management of these of these devices uh, from PCs to phones uh, allows them to support better for, for planning or deployment, management, maintenance, all these types of things. What is what is the value that device as a service potentially provides to some of these enterprises as opposed to just outright purchases? Uh, great question. And I like to use Amazon AWS as a great example. Um, what, what, uh, what AWS does on the data center side is, is it frees up infrastructure resources so you can put those same resources into developing applications. Okay, mm -hmm. it's as simple as that. And oh, by the way, you don't save money going to AWS. AWS costs extra money. There are no free lunches, and, and that's exactly the same case in, in DAS. And DAS is an evolution of PCAS, PC as a service, to pretty much be any endpoint uh, device, whether it be a printer, uh, a smartphone, or, or a PC. And, and what it does is it, is it just like AWS, it frees up resources uh, for people to go do uh, higher order projects like uh, IOT type projects, industrial IOT projects. Um, it's not necessarily, it's not the lower cost because it's actually more expensive. Uh, but instead of having your own people doing uh, configuration, deployment, support, maintenance, disposal, stuff like that, you're having HP do that. Even uh, a, a call uh, a call center, uh, they'll, they'll do for you. So Dell got the early move hmm on PC as a service. Uh, HP kind of ups the stakes with, with DAS and this deal of bringing Apple actually into the fold. So they'll actually do this for, for uh, every Apple uh, endpoint uh, out there. 
That so, was a little surprising, wasn't it? That, it was. That, that HP would essentially be selling, leasing Apple iPhones, iPads, Macs, competitive with their own products? It is, and it, I think it gives a good state of where the industry is, which is doing the hardware isn't a big moneymaker unless you're Apple and only Apple, and then all the other money is in, in services. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's incredibly interesting to me. I also talked with them, uh, I think, earlier in the month, last month, about um, devices as a service, even extending out into VR headsets, right? So they were doing professional-level VR headsets for medical imaging and PO, uh, like kind of just any kind of vertical segment that would utilize it. And I thought that was kind of an interesting add-on as well. Well, it is, particularly if you have somebody, if, if so first of all, workstations are super expensive. Mm. And let's say you don't know if you want to deploy for sure something like uh, AR and, and VR, uh, you, can, you can essentially use this as a, a very flexible um, mechanism to, to get a, a, taste, a taste of it. So yeah. uh, I'm looking for Lenovo's follow-up. They're kind of the, the, kind of the dark horse here in that um, they're the only company that has both Windows PCs and smartphones. That would make a very interesting... Uh, DAS uh, deployment, and I, I got a chance to talk to their new director of DAS, which interestingly enough, he comes from HP, where he created the strategy for uh, mm. HP. So, I'm expecting some interesting stuff uh, from from Lenovo. One more thing on HP, you you wrote a little bit about. I guess their expansion or um, diversification in these healthcare solutions. Um, what when you would look talk about the healthcare edition portfolio that HP is offering up here, are these are these PCs, notebooks, displays, printers, all of the above, and and what kind of makes them different from uh, the standard models we might see? Yeah. So uh, preface this with. PC is 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 not a growth industry. It's a mature industry. So what does every mature industry do? It specializes, right? We mm. see it in the auto industry uh, where we have multiple flavors of pickup trucks, uh, minivans, coupes, uh, sports sedans, uh, four-door. I mean, it, it, that's the way you make money here in a, in a market, and that's exactly what HP is doing. Um, you know, it's funny when I hear about stuff like this, I, my spidey senses go off and say it's a marketing program. It's not different. But the cool part here, it, it, these are actually different products. So first of all, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently the the wipes that they use at hospital can actually take the paint off normal PCs. So huh. uh, uh, on these new notebooks, these all-in-ones. And um, and displays, they actually have a special coating they put on that that once they're wiped down. And by the way, they have to be wiped down at least once a day. Right. Uh, the paint won't won't come off. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the second thing is there's a special uh, healthcare electrical standard uh, around safety that uh, it actually have diff- different kinds of plugs, different kinds of of, of cords. Uh, and then there is um, a, uh, a two-frequency RFID uh, adapter that typically our RFID just uses, uh, comes with one. And there's mm. different standards in hospitals, so it supports both. And plus, uh, it uses a, a new super fancy um, uh, FIPS 201 certified fingerprint reader. 
These are different that you'll find um, on regular PCs uh, today. And FIPS 201 is essentially a government standard um, that is used in all government uh, agencies. Hmm. And then it adds uh, kind of the traditional HP features uh, because healthcare is all about security and, and privacy. You know, every single one of the notebooks ships with uh, what's called SureView, which it, it's funny, um, you cannot see it from the side. Um, it's a special. Oh, it, it um, obscures the screen. Display, uh, right. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So you have to look at it head on. And that's not mm-hmm. optional like it is with, with the Elite Books. It's standard. You can't buy one of these notebooks uh, without it. And that's, I'm sure, going to be a big uh, uh, HIPAA. Uh, that's the yep. uh, U.S. privacy standard uh, desired uh, feature. So anyways, good stuff. It's what you would expect. Uh, HP has a really broad retail line all the way up point-of-sale machine. So... It looks like they're really trying to make a move into these vertical markets. It's good to Interesting. see. Yeah. Microsoft had a surprise announcement last week as well, talking about something called Windows ML, which is actually a brand new API um, that Microsoft will be including in the RS4 release of Windows 10, so not that far away, that addresses machine learning, as the ML would imply. Um, this this new API basically would allow software developers to take advantage of pre-trained machine learning models and basically power their apps or power certain features of their apps based on these types of things. The API allows for integration into, you know, kind of these existing Microsoft development tools like Visual Studio, and then it supports what's called ONNX, Open Neural Network Exchange Format Files, which basically represent these deep learning compute models and is is a, a standard that was created by, I think, in cooperation with Facebook and Microsoft at this point. So it basically allows you to take uh, uh, resulting networks that existed from frameworks like Cafe2 or Cognitive um, and export them into this format. Then you can then import into your application and development. Um, it's interesting, if you think about... You know, AI and, and neural networks and deep learning and machine learning, Microsoft is is actually closer to the forefront of this type of thing than I think most people realize, despite, you know, with the exception of maybe the, uh, uh, the Cortana. I was trying to think of an alternative to just saying that name out loud in case it triggers anybody's devices. <laughs> um, but... Th- other than that, that's kind of the, like the most forward-facing thing. But if you look at their Photos app, it does a lot of facial recognition uh, and kind of categorization that is also machine learning based. And the idea is by providing an easy to use and understand API that they can more that they can open up the idea of machine learning and the capabilities of machine learning and AI to a much much wider group of developers in a similar way to how DirectX standardized graphics deployment, right? And you didn't have to to get that close to the hardware in order to write 3D applications or take advantage of uh, rendering capabilities of graphics cards. They're, they're basically hoping that Windows ML or WinML, this new API, will do that. And it's it's available for uh, uh, the Windows, the UWP Windows Store apps. It's available for Win32 apps, kind of your standard Windows apps. Um, 
It has really good hardware support integrated already. Uh, obviously, it has CPU support, but it does have CPU instruction optimizations all the way up to Intel's AVX 512 implementation. So this is kind of one of the, I don't want to say one of the first, but one maybe one of the most interesting implementations of, of Intel's latest uh, AVX extensions. Uh, it supports anything that has DirectX 12 support for compute shaders. DirectML will operate through that. And uh, they even kind of gave a little preview of the Intel Movidius, uh, which was an acquired machine learning dedicated processor that Intel bought in last year, I think it was, uh, that this Windows ML would support acceleration on these dedicated processors as well. So it's, it's a really robust kind of system that they have built out already. Even Qualcomm claim, came out and said that they were going to have support for Windows ML, which is interesting because with a Snapdragon 835-based machines coming up, you know that SoC, the, the platform that, that they've built, has a lot of these kind of external capabilities and features. You know They have the AI engine built into it, but we always wondered, what does that matter if no applications have access to utilize the capabilities of that hardware? This API standardizes that and allows that to uh, to occur. So I, I did think that this was yeah. a pretty interesting announcement for them. Do you have any thoughts on on what this might open up for for either either for Microsoft or for the people that are us- utilizing the API? Yeah. So first off, Microsoft is very active in machine learning. Their machine learning as a service on Azure. Uh, is is up there with the big three guys with AWS and, and GCP. They have uh, bots and bot services. They have customized uh, vision, audio, and context APIs for for developers. And I'll admit, I, I'm super frustrated that with all the compute power we have on the PC, this this didn't come earlier. Why does the smartphone um, ha- come out? always happen to come out first with these kinds of, of capabilities. And this one's a big frustrator for me. Uh, but with that said, I got that off my chest. Now, now <laughs> we have it and let's see what developers can do. Th- this notion uh, that I have to go online into the cloud uh, and the latency that adds and the potential lack of privacy uh, is something that the PC needs to embrace and with all of the information on my PC, it seems like I could get some really good personalization. I could get some very private type of, of capabilities uh, here. So yeah. we just need to see uh, what they're going to do. And I'll file this on better late than never. Uh, yeah. Let's see what, what, what can happen. I mean, I... I have thousands of photos that I use with my Windows apps, and I can pretty much guarantee you it's not indexing using my GPU. Right. Uh, I've tried this. I've tested it. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what happens. And in other parts of the world, like China, they don't have services like Google Photos. They like to keep, and there is value in having, I'll call it a personal cloud that doesn't phone home to the bigger cloud. So I think this is going to be really good uh, for the same reasons e- reason that we think that edge compute is important in mm-hmm. IoT. It should be important for Windows-based devices too. Yep, yep. I do. I do think that the 
I think the reason the phones got this kind of uh, this message earlier is they just have a lot more like kind of external facing sensors, whether it be microphones or cameras and whatnot, uh, than the PCs typically do, standard do, um, or, or at least on the desktop side. So that's probably made maybe a little bit of an explanation for the the laggardness of this. But I, I but I agree. I think. Uh, I think the potential here is actually pretty substantial for what what the software ecosystem will will flourish into with this. Um, Another little bit of of news here is there's a a pretty big shift in market share in, I guess this is technically Q4 of last year. There was a a report out by John Petty Research that said that there was a um, 6.5% swing in discrete graphics from NVIDIA to AMD. So AMD jumped from 27.2 to 33.7% market share. And then obviously there's only two players here. So that means NVIDIA dropped from 72.8 to 66.3. That's a um, significant swing from from quarter to quarter. Uh, More than I think I can remember at least seeing in any single quarter over the last decade or so, although there may be an outlier or two somewhere. A couple of things that I note from this is one, even with that, big, you know, essentially a 12 point swing, NVIDIA still has more than double the market share, or at least double the market share of AMD in this discrete space, right? 33% to 66%. Um, also interesting is the, the, the kind of segmentation shifted in this quarter as well in terms of where these people were spending their money. The ASPs went up significantly. Uh, for example, what is categorized as a high-end graphics card went from 11% of the market up to 16% of the market quarter to quarter, and even mid-range went from 41 to 51%. So these are these are drastic increases in the ASPs that both companies were seeing, both NVIDIA and AMD, which explains a lot of the positives we've seen in uh, the financials of both companies as well in terms of profitability in these spaces. And then they also uh, this report also talks about It tries to dive into cryptocurrency and and what impact this has, but I I think fundamentally everybody in the industry agrees that it's incredibly difficult to track, right? Because a lot of these cards are being sold through the same channels as retail cards that would be used for gaming, and it's kind of hard to know what the final use case for them is. Uh, The JPR report claims that uh, add-in card vendors sold more than 3 million units to cryptocurrency miners directly equating for somewhere north of $775 million in revenue. Um, That is also, if that comes out to $258 per card or so, pretty high in terms of ASPs for the entire entire, uh, industry there. Um, Interestingly enough, that 3 million units represents about 6% of the total market for 2017. Uh, And that is, again, of stuff that was directly trackable, and I think it's probably a little bit higher than that all said and done. Any any thoughts on on what this means for for AMD or Nvidia? I don't I don't fundamentally I don't think Nvidia should be worried about this necessarily as they're the only company that I believe has plans to release new product this year. Uh, but it is it is, you know, in general good news for AMD at all. Yeah, it definitely is good. So one thing I'll point out uh, to our listeners here is these are market share numbers for add-in boards not yes. total PC graphics. Uh, Intel is actually the leader in graphics uh, unit with with all of their integrated graphics. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. There's so many 
I've done a lot of research on on crypto in the last month, and there's definitely a forking of of the industry. The wheel uh, of 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 all computing is that once a standard doesn't change, it's going to an ASIC, okay? Uh, unless there there's something completely uh, different that that bumps it off track. I, I would love to see one. I love to see Nvidia or AMD. Um, be able to um, do this right out of the box. And I think it'd be interesting. I don't think we would see as many ASICs pop up if there were 200, 300 million units out there that could, it could, they could start making, making money for people. I think even though ASICs are always more efficient uh, than, than something that's programmable, uh, they're also not programmable. So mm -hmm. if the spec changes, just like we've seen in AI, uh, machine learning training, uh, GPUs are going to be great for machine learning training uh, until uh, the frameworks die down. Now, I don't think that's going to happen for probably five years, but it's, it's the thing that people always need to keep in mind. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, the Let's see. I guess... We, you actually have one of these already. You're playing around with it, I think. The MS Microsoft Surface Pro LTE. Um, this is, by my understanding, I don't have one in in uh, in house yet to play around with yet. Is a, a standard Surface Pro tablet, two in one, um, that has now integrated a Snapdragon X16 LTE modem. Uh, in your experience thus far, does it does it fundamentally change the device? I think it. This I think this is absolutely awesome. Um, I, I have been carrying around a 9.7 inch iPad and an iPad Pro with LTE since it existed, yeah. and I no longer have to carry uh, my iPad. I just carry uh, the Surface Pro with with LTE. So my experience is really good. Uh, what I would like to see improved is the ability to pick your carrier in a very easy pull-down menu like there is with the iPad. Now, I got mine early, and I know Microsoft wants to improve that this, but upon boot up, I would, I would like to be presented with a list of carriers that I can, I can just yeah. uh, pick it. I did test eSIM, uh, uh, which was cool, where it has a built-in SIM already, and then I picked uh, one of their MVNOs, uh, mm. Just laying down a credit card that that was out of the box. That's so, pretty good. Yeah, so so that I liked, and and I've never used eSIM before, and this was a pretty cool uh, example of that. Right. I, I think one of the questions I have with this release is is this is this going to be a positive or a negative move uh, in relation for Qualcomm and its always on always connected PC initiative? On one hand, I do believe that. You know, Microsoft's kind of taking the initiative here and releasing an LTE-enabled Surface Pro legitimizes the consumer need for this kind of always connected device. On the other hand, it kind of puts the Qualcomm devices in an interesting position because from a from a raw CPU performance standpoint, this Surface Pro LTE is going to outperform what the Snapdragon 835 can do. And now it offers the same connected uh, capability. So I, I am I am still conflicted on, on, on whether or not this is good or bad. I think in the long run, 
this is a fairly expensive device. It's not available in the lowest price tier of the Surface Pro. It starts at the Core i5, I believe. And it, it does do it does go a long way to legitimize like, hey, getting this out to reviewers, proving to the media that actually this this fundamentally changes in some ways how you can use your device, uh, I think will be a positive thing for Qualcomm in the long run. Yeah, I think if if connected PCs are measured on raw performance, they're never going to win. So I don't see anything that Microsoft has done with this that any other Intel-based 8th gen uh, can't do as well. So I, I think the focusing on the battery life and the enhanced connectivity. Now, I haven't done... I would like, I'm hoping that all always connected PC vendors have gigabit LTE, but I don't believe that's going to be the case, but they will have the advantage on battery life. Uh, I have I have the new Asus now. I know you've had that for a while. We both played around with the HP, but um, uh, the Qualcomm versions always have better battery life. Um, and I, I, I'd hope to think that they would have better connectivity as well but it's a good question yeah yeah all right i think that's going to we 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 talked longer than our normal episode this week but there was a lot to get to and i still think plenty that we left on the table for uh an upcoming episode uh you can find me on twitter at ryan shrout patrick is on twitter as well at patrick moorhead you can find all of our previous episodes of the tech analyst podcast as well as rss feeds and uh, uh links and all that type of stuff to how you can subscribe through iTunes or Google Play or however you would normally do it at thetechanalysts.com. And uh, we will see you next week, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.